Well, hello there, and welcome to the good old days of radio show. This is John Tefteller, your host, and it's Thursday. Now, we finished up our top 10 monster stuff last Thursday, and we're moving into a new and hopefully very interesting series. The series we're moving into now is 10 radio programs that were written by radio writer Lucille Fletcher. I have always liked Lucille Fletcher's stories. Uh, We played The Hitchhiker from Suspense some time ago, so we're not going to do that one. That's one of my my favorite Lucille Fletcher stories, but she was much more than that. She did a number of other plays, mostly ghost and horror-type stories, but also comedies. And so we're going to explore the radio career of Lucille Fletcher over a 10-week period starting today. And because we are doing that, and because we have someone who actually knew Lucille Fletcher, I did not, we have invited Mr. Donald Ramlow to be on the program with us today, and he is going to talk with me about Lucille Fletcher's radio career. We're going to do it in bits and pieces over the next 10 weeks. We are, we're, we're not going to uh, do this all in one shot, but we'll have some some basic introductory comments uh, today and a program, and then we'll have another one next week and another one the week after that until we finish. So a little bit about uh, my guest for the day. Donald Ramlow is a big fan of old-time radio. His interests uh, started as a young child during the 1970s, about the same time as me. Actually, this all looks pretty darn familiar, except uh, he was attending radio conventions on, I guess, the East Coast, and I was attending them on the West Coast. But that's good, because then we have a different perspective. And he got to work with a number of the radio people doing recreations, just like, yeah, we did recreations out on the, the West Coast, although I was never directly involved with those. I did like to go watch them. And they had some some fun ones at the Spurdvac convention. And I see on here that Don, do you want to be called Don or Donald? Don's perfectly okay. Don, okay. Sorry, I didn't want to be too formal here. And there he is. You heard his voice. It's Don Ramlow. And he apparently was also at one of those, at least one of those Spurdvac conventions. So I must have seen him there unless it was one I wasn't at. But anyway, um, he has an audio theater group in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And that's where you live now, correct? That is correct. Yeah, okay. Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, halfway between Detroit and Chicago. Uh, your group was called the All Ears Theater. Is it still going? That's correct. Uh, unfortunately, no. It ran for 18 years, and then uh, COVID came, came along, and as it did with so many lives, it changed everything. And when people started going back into uh, doing activities, it was decided not to continue the series. Uh, at that point in time, but we did have 18 years of uh, productions. And uh, what was nice about that was the fact that uh, all of our shows were broadcast over our lo- local public radio station. Well, it's good you had a public radio station willing to broadcast such things. <laughs> That's true. That can be a challenge, but we were very fortunate in that way. Okay, and you're a member of a group called the Knights of the Turning Table. I like that. Uh, 
that little uh, description, and that's uh, dedicated to the preservation of original radio recordings. Well, I've been doing that since 1972, so we're right on the same page there. Uh, somehow we've never met until now, but hey, hi, nice to meet you, and welcome to the Good Old Days of Radio podcast. Yeah, sounds good, and I uh, am enjoying meeting you two for the first time, so to speak, over the uh, phone as we talk, and I know that you've devoted a lot of your life to many different interests, including radio theater, so you know it's nice that we have that commonality between us. Yep, yep, very good. Well, let's talk a little bit about Lucille Fletcher. I think the first thing I would like to know, and probably what will set this up best for the audience is, I was not aware of anything about Lucille Fletcher when I was in Los Angeles during the days of Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters and Spurdvac and all that stuff. I was not aware that Lucille Fletcher was still living. I didn't know anything. And here I find out that uh, she was still living and that you had actually become friends with her and did an interview with her, I guess, at some point, at least one or two. Hopefully we have some audio from that at some point to offer. But I didn't know anything. All I know is I loved a lot of her writing. I thought that it was always impeccably great. And a lot of radio was very inconsistent, but I always found her to be very consistent in what she did. So I want to know uh, how you first met Lucille Fletcher, first of all, and then we'll go from there. Well, that sounds interesting, and that's kind of a story in itself. Uh, Back in the uh, uh, 1970s, I started, as I mentioned, getting very interested in radio. And then moving into the 80s, I started uh, uh, going to a few of the conventions, the Friends of Old Time Radio convention being my first exposure to that. And... uh, while I was listening to one of the uh, classic suspense recordings, uh, the Diary of Sophronia Winners. That's a great uh, the, one. It is. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> and we and will be featuring her, that. <laughs> a little bit later down, you yep. bet. And uh, when I was listening to it for the first time, uh, all of a sudden uh, the character in the show, Sophronia, goes, I was born in 1892 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. My oh. name is Sophronia, and my uh, father was vice president of the Kalamazoo First National Bank. All of those are, at that time, were true organizations going on. So I got my curiosity up, because already this was a woman that I really enjoyed, like you, listening to. And now all of a sudden I've got a direct reference to where I live in one of the shows. So I started tracking down information on her. Well, through a little bit of perseverance, and this is predating computer access days, I was able to uh, locate a mailing address for her, found out that she was still alive. So I wrote to her, you know, expressing a little interest, how much I enjoyed her shows, asking her why she had mentioned that in the show. I then did some further research and actually found a home phone number for her. And she was was living in Kalamazoo, Michigan? No, she was actually living uh, where she had been for many years uh, in Avon Light, uh, Maryland, oh. as a matter of fact. But I had found references to her. So I called her up finally one day, and sure enough, she answered the phone herself. I again refreshed her as to who I was, and we started talking about things. And I said, well, how come this happened in this particular case? And then she said, well, uh, when I was going to school at Vassar, one of my friends grew up in Kalamazoo and was going to college at the same time. So I put that into the story just as a reference to her, kind of an inside joke, if you will, uh, to uh, uh, mention my friend in the story like that. And I thought that was pretty cool 
that she did that. Well, then we corresponded a little bit, talked some more, and eventually she ended up getting invited to the Friends of Old Time Radio Convention, at which she attended at least twice. Okay, now when, when was this when you were first making contact with her, in the 90s? No, this was in the early 80s. Oh, this okay, back even 80s. further, okay. Right, this was in the early 80s, and the first convention she attended was uh, 1985. Oh, and so, we had yes. William Robeson. William Robeson was also there at the same time, and they did a recreation, of course, of uh, uh, Sorry, Wrong Number, since they were both there. And then she came back again several years later, 1990, I believe, uh, in which she talked further about what was going on. And I did a panel with her at that time, which I hope to get the audio from that at some point for us so that we can listen to some of what that was on there at the time. Sure. I'd love, not- love to hear her voice. I've never heard her voice. I've just appreciated her writing. Yeah. And then, uh, so what happened is when we started communicating, I finally got a chance to meet her uh, at the convention outside of New York, along with her daughter, Wendy. And I was so amazed... Here this is this woman, relatively diminutive in size, very very uh, self-assured, very well-spoken, uh, definitely did not pull any punches if she believed in something, but at the same time, she was just this nice, gentle woman. And here are these shows that I love, just like you do, all of these things were out there just totally contrary to what her personality was. Well. And so that was kind of an interesting contrast between who she was and how she came across versus the, the writing style that she did. All right. Um, Can you tell me a little bit of a brief biography of her, like just a few things that would lead us up to about 1940 when this story we're going to play today, My Client Curly, that I believe was first aired in either the late 30s or the early 40s. So get us up to that point with her. Sure. Uh, In this particular case, uh, uh, she was born in 1912, I believe. And then uh, as she got older, she eventually... uh, attended Vassar uh, College, where she graduated. During the time that she was at Vassar, she was uh, had a major love of music, and so she took and he worked for their uh, uh, newspaper that they had. There is a music critic uh, working for Vassar, and then eventually uh, she went to work uh, for CBS, or Columbia Broadcasting, uh, working in a variety of tasks, from typing to uh, to actually coordinating and working with some of the scripts coming in, uh, publicity a little bit, and along Would the way... Would this be CBS in New York? Uh, that is correct. Okay. And she uh, did that for a while, and then she had a chance to meet uh, Bernard Herman, of course, and when she met him, uh, then they eventually got married, and that was in 1939, I believe. Okay, for and those then- who don't know, Bernard Herman is one of the most famous composers of film music around. Uh, he did... Uh, a great scores for a lot of very famous classic films and also did a lot of radio scores as well. So she married Bernard Herrmann in 1939. That is correct. And then when she, because of her job, when she was reading so many scripts, uh, then she took and said, well, I can do better than that, I'm sure. (laughs) You know, and so she just started looking at ideas that she had and starting putting them into script format. And along the way, she'd also been doing articles for various magazines on uh, uh, various uh, things that interested her. In some cases, they were just standard informational stuff, writing about famous composers and sound effects on radio. 
and that kind of stuff, and occasionally a few short stories, of which I believe the first show, uh, a show we're going to listen to at some point, my client Curly was based on one of her short stories. So, you know, she did a wide variety of things, and that leads us up to this approximate time period where she was working for Columbia Radio. Okay, so she was working for Columbia, married to Bernard Herman. Norman Corwin did the adaptation of her story, My Client Curly. At least that's what it says at the beginning of the show. It was broadcast a couple different times. Do you know when the first one was? Because the one we're going to use today is from 1946. I think that's a later version. Right. I believe the first appearance was in March of 1940. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. Because we're listening to Lady Esther, I believe. Yes. March of 1940 would have been Columbia Workshop then, right? Right. And so, you know, when she first had it done, and it turned out to be such a uh, beautiful show when they did it that, uh, you know, they did it, like you said, uh, repetitive. A lot of different uh, organizations took her script and did their own versions of it. And, of course, when you take a talent like, you know, Norman Corwin, who I had the pleasure of meeting several times, and uh, match her up with Lucille. It was uh, just an unbelievable uh, combination. For people who are younger, shall we say, we should point out, uh, or I'll point out, and you can see if you agree or disagree, there weren't many female radio writers back then. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, oh, absolutely. There definitely were not that many writers, and for her to be able to break into it, uh, what was quite a big deal. I think the fact that she was able to work for the uh, radio CBS at the time opened a door for her that she probably wouldn't have had had she been trying to submit from outside. But being within the organization, I think probably gave her an opportunity to at least be considered, if you will. Yeah, well, uh, that's that's a good good point because most of the radio programs that I'm aware of and have listened to over the years, I don't recall any other than those written by Lucille Fletcher that were written by a woman. Now, I'm sure there are some, but her plays just stand out so much as being so great that it is uh, surprising to me that she was one of the very few women that were allowed to write for radio back then. Yeah, and the other thing is, when I've I've, I've been working on uh, gathering information for many years on suspense, and I have a book about uh, 90% completed on that particular series. And during some, the time I was looking at some of the correspondence, she was also one of the few writers, if they were going to make a change, they gave her the courtesy of asking if she was okay with that. You know, a lot of writers, they submitted their scripts, and then they were off and they did whatever they were going to do with the scripts, and they moved on to the next script that they were doing. But in the case of Lucille, at least in one instance, uh, I remember a reference I came across they wanted to check with her before they made any major changes uh, to her script, which I think speaks a lot to her ability and the respect that she had. Yeah, that's a, a, a huge sign of respect. And I think her being married to Bernard Herman and also working with Norman Corwin early on, I think she basically earned her, her position that way. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. And I know that uh, a lot of the people that worked with her scripts considered her one of the finest writers, period, regardless of gender, they really thought of her as just a magnificent writer, period. Okay. With that, from, (laughs) uh, let's see, the date here, Lady Esther Screen Guild Players, February 4th, 1946, directly off the original uh, transcription disc, courtesy Mr. Jerry Hendigas, we have My Client Curly. Now, for those of you expecting 
a, a Thursday monster show or a Thursday horror show or some gruesome murder mystery, whatever. That's not what you're going to get this Thursday. We'll have some of those coming up. This is a kind of a fantasy comedy. So we really should be playing this on Tuesday, but that's okay. Since we're saluting Lucille Fletcher on Thursdays, we're going to have uh, whatever she did, whether it was comedy, drama, or horror, we're going to have it all here on Thursdays. So every Thursday for the next 10 weeks. And here is my client, Curly. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild players in one of the most delightful stories it has ever been our pleasure to bring you. It is My Client Curly by Norman Corwin, based on a short story by Lucille Fletcher. It stars Robert Montgomery as the agent and Ted Donaldson as Stinky. In this play, any similarity to caterpillars, living or dead, is purely coincidental. There are some things a man doesn't like to talk about because they're... Well, I'll just tell you this story about my client, Curly, and then I'll go back to the agent business and try and forget it. But if I should get a lump in my throat while I'm telling it, I hope you'll understand because this whole thing was so recent, I still feel pretty upset about it. To make a long story short, I'm out walking one day in the suburbs where I live when my attention is attracted by two kids sitting on the side of the road and one of them is playing the harmonica. They're bent over, watching something on the ground, and I, being curious, go over to see what it is. Hi, boys, what do you got there? We got a trained caterpillar. What's trained about it? He dances. <laughs> I don't believe it. Oh, he sure does. Give us a nickel and we'll show you. Oh, a racket, eh? All right, I'm a sucker. Here's two nickels. Oh, thanks, mister. Yeah, okay, play, Stinky. Well, what do you know? Now stop. Well, I'll be darned. He stops right when you do. Well, sure, that's the way Stinky trained him, didn't you, Stinky? Oh, it was nothing. Hey, play some more, Stinky. <laughs> he lies right down when you're finished. Oh, sure. He's talented, ain't he? Come on up by my finger, Curly. Come on, fella. That's a boy. Hey, hey, does Curly dance to any kind of music? No, only yes, sir. That's my baby. You mean to tell me he dances to only one tune? That's right. I tried lots more, but I guess he only likes that one. Well, why is that, do you suppose? Mm, fella I know says he's got a real musical ear. Well, I guess that's what those two branches are on his head, huh? Musical ears. No, no, that's his antenna. Huh, antenna. <laughs> oh, he ain't no radio set. <laughs> say. Say. You what? I wonder if he's got any snake blood in him. You know, there are some snakes who dance. No kidding. Here, let me take your harmonica a minute. Okay, sure. Nope, won't budge. I guess it's an American caterpillar, all right. Oh, Sure. Look, fellas, I'll make you a proposition. How'd you like to sell Curly? How much? Now, wait a minute. I own Curly, and I don't want to sell him. Why not, Stinky? Well, because I... Well, just because. No, I don't want to sell. No, why? 
On account of he's stuck on him. Oh, shut up, fatso. You mean you like Curly so much you don't want to part with him, huh? Oh, I just don't want to sell him, that's all. Not even for a dollar. Not even for two dollars. Well, of course, I don't think anybody would ever offer you that much money. Oh, I don't care. He's my pet and I want to keep him. I trained him from a pup. Now, look, kiddo. I think you're a very bright and sensitive boy, and because of that, I'm going to make you an immediate cash payment of five dollars for Curly. Hey, five bucks? Holy smackerels. What do you say, Stinky, huh? Gosh, I don't know. Take it, I'm telling you. Now you can buy a bike. Well, that sure is a lot of money. But you see, I like Curly, and I guess Curly likes me, too. When we're alone, I talk to him, and he understands me. Curly likes me around. He's awful intelligent, even though he don't look so smart. Oh, he looks smart, all right. You know, if somebody took him away from me, Curly would die. You think so? Oh, sure. He's only human, ain't he? He would absolutely die. Now, listen to me, Snicky. I'm going to talk to you man to man. This caterpillar you got is very valuable. He's worth a lot of money. Way more than $5, maybe. No kidding. Now, this is what we're going to do, Stinky. You're going to stay with Curly, and I'm going to manage both of you. Curly will be my client. What's that mean? Yeah, what's a client? Well, you wouldn't understand very well. That's something I'll have to explain to your parents because i got to get their signatures on a long-term contract with options. You're a minor under the law, you see. Oh, I didn't do anything wrong, did I? Well, that was how it began. I got Curly under my management, and I takes him and Stinky with me. The first thing I do is to start out after some publicity and say to those reporters, eat it up. Front page with pictures. Pictures of Curly and pictures of Stinky and pictures of me. Pictures of my client dancing on a leaf, curling around the mayor's finger, climbing up a pretty model's legs, sitting in a tiny box at the opera, and headlines. Headlines like in the Times. Swing caterpillar sways to strains of Yes, Sir, That's My Baby. Fred Astaire of Insect World demonstrates almost human sense of rhythm. The Post. Curly in custody of Stinky, young Svengali of Caterpillars. The Brooklyn Eagle. Insect phenomena loined the truck in truck garden, manager avoids. The World Telegram. The curly crawl becomes new national dance sensation. The Daily News. Bug cuts rug, story on page two. Sure enough, with all that publicity, things really begin to happen. First, Bill Robinson introduces the curly capers at the Cotton Club. Then Raymond Scott writes a song called The Caterpillar Creep. Then half a dozen agencies bid for the rights to syndicate a comic strip. 429 papers, five days a week, making a grand total Other companies pay me royalties for curly balloons and spaghetti and dolls and toys and picture books and decorations on the outside of drinking glasses. Ma, buy me the glass with Curly's picture on it. And to make a long story short, I get a vaudeville offer. The money begins to roll in. I hire an expensive suite and a secretary. Curly Enterprises, good afternoon. I buy Stinky a bike and a new suit of clothes. Gee, thanks. The publicity begins to pile up, and at the height of the excitement, I get a wire from Hollywood. Offer 10000 for curly appearance in feature-length cartoon. Propose using living character for first time among cartoon characters. Appreciate immediate answer. Would like to rush story and production. Cordially, Walt Disney. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, Miss Nielsen. Yeah. Take a wire to Walt Disney, Hollywood, California. Yes, sir. Curly Price, 
One hundred thousand. Is that all? You think I should ask for more? No, no, I mean, is there any more to the wire? Oh, oh Curly Enterprises. Oh, well, just a moment, please. It's Time Magazine on the line. Would you take it on the table for Yeah, yeah, all right. Hello? Yeah, this is him. Yeah. Well, you see... Yeah, uh-huh. No, I discovered him in the boy's possession. What's that? Curly Enterprises. No, no. Yes, well, sir. he's busy no, on he another hasn't. line. Right. No, I keep oh, him right yeah. here. Well, he Snakey looks after most of the time. Oh, yeah, well, he wanted me to tell you to order a special yeah. airmail daily shipment. No, 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 no. I beg your pardon. Well, oh, oh, by all means, from yeah. the wait. very first. Yeah, okay, hello, Curly Enterprises. That's right. Wait just a minute. Not yet. Hello, Curly Enterprises. Well, I guess... Well, we tried all kinds of things. Hang on a minute. Hello, Curly Enterprises. Which are you referring to? No, I don't. You better hire some more secretaries. No. Well, things are going in great shape, and Curly is making us a bundle of dough, when all of a sudden I get three visitors I didn't figure on. We have been reading about your wonderful specimen in the papers, and we have come to ask permission to examine it. Examine it? What for? We are lepidopterists. Yes. Leopard, uh, yeah, eh? But Curly's a caterpillar, not a leopard. Ah, no, my dear man. Lepidopterology is a branch of entomology dealing with the insect order of which your, uh, shall we say, client is a member. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm sure Curly doesn't want to be examined by nobody. Oh, come, come. If this caterpillar is as remarkable as the newspapers say, then it would be nothing short of criminal to withhold such knowledge from science. Well, if you want to put it that way, I suppose... It'll take no more than two minutes. Yeah, I suppose it's all right. Come with me, please. Hello, Stinky. Oh, hello. This is Master Stinky, gentlemen, discoverer and trainer of my client. He guards Curly all the time. How do my man think Well, there he is in that box. Please be careful how you handle him. Ah, here you are. My muscular little fellow, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Normal mandible. Unusually conspicuous first maxillae. I say, watch out there, Doctor. He's trying to bite you. Ah! Never been attacked by a caterpillar before. Astounding. Uh, see here, Doctor. Just just notice this remarkable elongation of the abdominal feet. Yes, quite. And doesn't this feature make you think of the ugly's untieper? Yes. Look here, look here. Isn't this remarkable? I have never seen such a cellar except in the Melanargia Galathea. And the jittinization. No kidding. Well, sir, congratulations. This is a remarkable specimen, even before we test its reactions to musical stimuli. Yeah, thanks. It's of the ordinary genus Papilio rutulus, mind you, but it has the most extraordinary feature. (laughs) Thanks very much. But uh, we feel that the specimen would be much more valuable to society if you, instead of exhibiting it for commercial purposes, were to uh, lend or donate it to the Museum of Natural History, where it could be further studied by the leading entomologists in the world. Yeah, but I... Yes, and when it dies, we can dissect it. No, no, we're not going to take him away. Don't let him take him. Don't cry, my boy. We're not going to hurt him. An insect like this occurs probably once in a million years. And surely for the sake of a few dollars, you're not going to risk injuring him by overwork. Are you accusing me of sacrificing Curly's health for profits? Why, that's ridiculous. Curly is... Yeah, come in. Just got another wire from the coast. Disney's race is offered at 20,000. 20? Tell him 100,000 or nothing.
second act of My Client Curly, starring Robert Montgomery and Ted Donaldson, will follow in just a moment. But first, a word from one of America's best-known beauty authorities, Lady Esther. I'd like you to listen to two men saying exactly the same words. But oh, what a world of difference in their meaning. Listen. Darling, you're so beautiful, I love you. Darling, you're so beautiful, I love you. Yes, a world of difference. An exciting difference that's plain and unmistakable. And I say to you, the difference you'll see in your skin after just one application of Lady Esther face cream is plain and unmistakable too. An exciting difference that you can see and feel. Now, I don't ask you to take my word for it. All I ask is the chance to show you, to prove to you, what one application of Lady Esther face cream can do for your skin. All I ask is that you make the simple 30-second patch test. To make this test, just smooth Lady Esther face cream on one patch of skin, like one cheek. Wipe it off. Then compare that cheek with the other. See the radiant difference. Then touch your skin and feel the difference. This 30-second patch test will show you how thoroughly Lady Esther face cream cleans your skin, how it softens your skin, how it helps nature refine the pores, and how it leaves a smooth, perfect base for powder. Remember, all I ask is that you let the patch test prove all this, prove it on your own skin, in just one application of Lady Esther face cream. Well, the papers got hold of the Lepidopterist story, and there's another pile of publicity. It gets to be a moral issue, with preachers delivering sermons and all like that. I'm attacked editorially for exploiting caterpillar labor, but on the other hand, I am defended as an individualist who refuses to submit the regimentation. The American Legion and the Daughters of American Revolution send Curly an engraved silver-plated twig and a miniature flag to put on top of his box. The foreign correspondents get busy and cable stories to their papers. In Madrid, the Spanish Grafico comes out with a dirty dig. Mas los norteamericanos no deben olvidar que la danza española es la mejor de todas y que si la oruga del señor Stinky tuviese un poquitín de buen oído para la música... How do you like that, Fener? But get this. The curly motive ain't reflected, as they say, in the latest Paris fashions. Caterpillar doodads on hats and bags and scarves and all like that. La Temps, that's a newspaper in Paris, comes out with a swell plug. Tous ceux qui aiment la nature se réjouiront avec notre république sur les États-Unis de la découverte faite récemment par un garçon qui s'appelle Stinky. La découverte d'une génie dansante, Curly. Et c'est remarquable de constater que cet insecte ne consent en assez que si l'on joue à l'air justement célèbre, oui, monsieur, c'est mon bébé. And you know what? My clipping service sends me some encouraging comment from Shanghai, which I get my laundryman to translate for me. Yes, sir, that's my baby. Stinky. The Maharaja of Lahore sends curly some willow leaves from the sacred willow trees of the temple. Gee, look, a package from a place named Lakeshore with a lot of funny-looking stamps. Lahore, Lahore, not Lakeshore. Can I have the stamps? Yeah, here you are. 
I signed Curly up for a super special movie short, and it sweeps the box office of the country in spite of terrible weather, including blizzards and rainstorms. Variety reports. Blizz and Driz failed to fizzle biz as Bug Biff's B.O. from N.Y. to L.A. Life magazine runs a Margaret Burke White picture of Curly on the cover with the caption, Curly. CBS does a pickup direct from Curly's box, bringing the sound of Curly eating dinner. This is Truman Bradley speaking to you from the headquarters of Curly Enterprises, where we have a microphone buried among willow leaves to pick up the sound of the world's leading insect dancer, busy eating dinner after a hard day's work of exhibiting his time. Walt Disney raises his bid to 50000 but I still hold out for 100000 To make a long story short, everything's going along hunky-dory until one day some more public-spirited guys get a hold of Curly. Only this time they're not scientists. They're musicians. And therefore, in the interests of music, we of the committee feel that you would be rendering an invaluable service to musical knowledge if you would permit us to test the effect of classical music on your client. Yeah, but what good would that do anybody? Why, it may open an entirely new field of psychology in relation to music. The world knows very little about musical instincts of animals and nothing at all about insects. Ah, but you're wasting your time. Curly dances to only one tune. Ah, but have you tried? other two. Why, sure. Tell them what you played, Stinky. Oh, I played her. It ain't gonna rain no more. My country tears are thee. The beer barrel poker shine on harvest moon. The music goes round and round. Ah, but no classical music. Sure we did. I played myself Our Sweet Mystery of Life by Victor Herbert. But you haven't tried any symphonies, have you? Disney's trying to get us for a silly symphony right now. His latest offer. No, 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 no. I'm afraid you don't understand. Let me explain what we propose to do. Now, we get Curly in a studio with an orchestra and go through a careful series of tests using selected symphonic music of... All right. I know you're tired, gentlemen. We've now been through 67 pieces already, but let's try a few more and then we'll quit until tomorrow. Oh, hasn't the caterpillar even moved a muscle? Uh, So far, he hasn't budged once, but maybe we'll get him with the habanera from Carmen. Stop, stop. All right, try number 69, Rosamunda Billy. Stop. Next, number 70, Strauss's Perpetuum Mobile. For two and a half days this went on, and finally after the 202nd try, something happened that really made the papers sit up and take notice all over again. The amalgamated press next day carried this story. Curly, the Terpsichorean caterpillar, today staggered scientists and musicians when he suddenly went into a stately dance upon hearing the second movement of Beethoven's Eighth Symphony. Scientists are unable to explain the phenomenon. The management of the caterpillar announced, meanwhile, that Curly will appear as the lead in a ballet entitled Extravaganza for Insects Only by William Saroyan. And then things really began to break for us. Mrs. Roosevelt writes about it in her column, My Day. It is not often that a creature smaller than one's little finger can completely captivate the imagination of millions. Yet, 
Such is the remarkable truth about the caterpillar named Curly. And it has been many years... Scientific societies offer to investigate Curly's genius. And would you believe that the annual convention of the American Lepidopterological and Entomological Society invites Stinky to lecture before it. Uh, so, uh, so I said to my mother, so I said to my mother, Ma, can I have a penny? I want to buy a piece of candy. So my mother says, yeah. So she gives me the penny, and so on my way to the store, I see a caterpillar. Across in the road. Um, so I stopped to watch it, see? So I picked it up... And, and all this time, the money keeps coming in. We're getting along fine, although it costs a lot to keep up my expensive offices and staff of secretaries. But I'm figuring on getting the big dough, the 100000 from Disney, and then retiring, see? Well, to make a long story short, there are a couple of exchanges of telegrams and phone calls with me holding out for my price, and then one night, Disney wires... We'll meet your price of 100000 Please fly out with Curly next plane. Wow, am I excited? I rush into the next room where Stinky and Curly are sleeping. Stinky, wake up. We're rich. We're practically millionaires. Oh, what's the Come on, kid. Get your clothes on. Hurry up. We're going to take a long airplane ride with me and Curly. And boy, am I going to buy Curly the juiciest willow leaf he ever ate in his life. Now, let me tell the news to Curly. <laughs> Here you are, little fella. Here you are. Hey, where is he? Why isn't he in his box? Where's Curly? Curly! Oh, I put him to bed, all right. Ain't he in his box? Quick! Look all around the room. Under the carpet, under the bed, Curly, and the walls, everywhere. Back, and be Curly, careful where you walk. Curly, come Curly, back. Curly, Please, listen. Curly. Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, yes, sir, no, Bobby. No, I don't mean Curly. Baby. Curly, Please, I love you. Where Curly, are you? Curly, don't leave us. A hundred thousand bucks, Curly. <laughs> yes, yes, sir, no, that's, that's my, my baby. baby. Yes, sir. Hey, Stinky, take this flashlight, look for him along the corridor, and ask the manager to let you look at the bottom of the elevator shaft. Meanwhile, I'm going to phone the police. Yes, sir, that's my baby. Operator, operator, get me the police headquarters, operator. Calling all cars, calling all cars. Be on lookout for a dancing caterpillar. Be on the lookout for a dancing caterpillar. C-A... T-E-R-P-I-L-L-A-R, Caterpillar, that is all. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, the Federal Bureau of Investigation will neither deny nor confirm rumors that Curly, the $100,000 Caterpillar, was kidnapped. The whole country searches in vain. Nobody's seen Curly, the police throw out a dragnet. Posses are formed. Radio stations play Yes Sir, That's My Baby at intervals throughout the day and ask all lit listeners to be on the lookout. Curly fans from all over send in money for a fine Curly fund. And I am privileged, as president of the Fine Curly Club, to announce to the members that the Fine Curly Fund has reached the impressive and staggering total of $12,385.14 with the entire sum Yet to be heard from. But nobody finds Curly. And now that he's gone, I begin to realize how much I love that bug. I begin to understand why it was Stinky couldn't bear to sell him to me way back in those happy days. I can't bear thinking of willow leaves. I find myself hating all birds and looking suspiciously at all cats. Meanwhile, sympathizers from all over the world, including Scandinavian countries, send me caterpillars, 
hoping maybe they have found Curly and are eligible for a reward offered by the fine Curly Fund. Mister, here's another barrel of caterpillars from Australia. Where shall I put it? Give it to the zoo. Which zoo, mister? Any zoo, any zoo, so long as you get it out of here. Days go by. Weeks go by. I send Stinky home. Goodbye. Goodbye, Stinky. Well, at least you got a nice suit of clothes on you. And a fine automobile and a chauffeur to drive you home. I'd rather have Curly back again. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, goodbye. Bye. 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 And then one day, I'm sitting in my place, playing sadly on the piano with one finger, as is my want. And all of a sudden, out from under the music rack, creeps Curly. Only he's changed. He's different. He's not dancing anymore. He's a butterfly. <laughs> Curly... Hello, Curly. You're a big boy now, ain't you? He flutters his wings a little when I say that, and I stroke his antenna, which are now very long and very beautiful. I see he's getting restless for the outdoors, where he no doubt hears the call of his mate. So I sing a farewell to him. Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir, don't mean maybe... He flutters around my head and then flies over to a picture of Stinky on the bureau and then flutters back to me. And after one long look at me, he flies out of the window, never more to come back again. <laughs> to make a long story short, I sit down and I feel like crying. In fact, I do cry. Yeah. Who would ever think that a grown man would ever cry about a caterpillar? But I did, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. And that's the story of my client, Curly. On behalf of the Motion Picture Relief Fund, thank you, Robert Montgomery and Ted Donaldson, for your delightful performances in tonight's play. Thank you again. And now, before we tell you about next week's program, here's a word from one of America's best-known beauty authorities, Lady Esther. Have you had any compliments on your appearance lately? Try changing your shade of face powder and see what happens. See how Bridal Pink, the newest and most popular Lady Esther shade, brings you one compliment after another. Bridal Pink is a shade completely young, a little daring, and more than a little romantic. Very romantic, women tell me. They say it's fun to see how their husbands suddenly take notice when they begin using Lady Esther Bridal Pink. And it doesn't matter whether your hair is blonde, brown, auburn, or black. Bridal Pink is intensely flattering to almost every skin it touches. It does surprising, delightful things for your entire appearance. Bridal Pink deepens the tone of your skin, gives it new life. 
It brings out highlights of beauty in your hair. It gives sparkle to your eyes. And women tell me they love the way Lady Esther face powder clings hour after hour. The way it stays fresh and lovely, always as though just applied. It's so fine in texture, it spreads like a delicate clinging film, completely hiding tiny lines and blemishes. For a truly dramatic change in your appearance, try this. First, apply Lady Esther face cream. Wipe it off. Then gently pat on Lady Esther Bridal Pink Face Powder. You'll feel young and gay and ready for romance when you see the radiant reflection that smiles back at you from the mirror. Remember, Lady Esther Four Purpose Face Cream, Lady Esther Bridal Pink Face Powder. Next week, the Lady Esther Screen Guild players will present Don Juan Quilligan. It will star Phil Silvers and William Bendix. Be sure to listen. My Client Curly was presented through the courtesy of Norman Corwin and Lucille Pletcher. Robert Montgomery appeared through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of the Technicolor musical The Harvey Girls. Ted Donaldson can now be seen in the 20th Century Fox production A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. You save enough on the largest size jar of Lady Esther face cream to buy a box of Lady Esther face powder. So remember, ask for the largest size. Music on tonight's program was arranged and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. This is Truman Bradley speaking for Lady Esther. Thank you and good night. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From February 4th, 1946, the Lady Esther Screen Guild Players production of My Client Curly by Lucille Fletcher, adapted for this particular production by Norman Corwin. And we have a special guest with us today on the Good Old Days of Radio show, Mr. Don Ramlow, who is a, uh, I'll call him a Lucille Fletcher expert. So Don... I hadn't heard that in a long time, and I'm not even sure I ever heard that particular version. I think I heard the original one from 1940. But it was very, very cleverly written. That's that's Class A radio. You could take that script and you could make a few minor changes for the time period so you don't hear references to President Roosevelt and things like that. And you could you could do that now for, for radio anywhere and entertain adults and children alike. What do you think? Oh, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, about 15 years ago, uh, Mr. Corwin gave me permission uh, to do a recreation of my client, Curly. And that's all we had to do is just some minor adjustments to it. And we performed it live in front of an audience. And uh, they reacted the same way uh, the audience did on, on this particular performance, uh, with one maybe noticeable exception. At the end, when Curly is found out to have morphed into a, a butterfly, the audience was almost in tears oh. you know, because they were so pulled into the story about what was going on. So so that was kind of nice. They laughed through the whole thing. They loved the characterizations. Uh, but then uh, at the end, they were really kind of touched by the story. 
itself. So yeah, it it holds up very very well. It's exquisite writing on the part of Norman when he wrote the script based on her story. Yeah, and it takes an ex, an exquisite writer to give you that combination of of laughter and pathos at the end. I noticed in yep. this in this one is uh, the guy that played uh, Digger Odell in the life of Riley was uh, one of the characters in there, not really disguising his Digger Odell voice very much. That's correct, and of course, you know, when you think of Truman Bradley, you have to rush right away to uh, think about suspense and his connection to that long-running series also. The other thing I think is important to remember is that they actually did turn this into a film with Cary Grant in 1944. Wow, I missed that one. Is that available anywhere? Uh, I believe it is. It was called Once Upon a Time. I haven't seen it in decades, but it was called Once Upon a Time and came out in 1944 based on Corwin's script and on uh, Lucille's story. And while it did well, it did not play as well in that environment, at least in my opinion, uh, as it is as a radio script. Yeah, I I can see it would work much better. You use your imagination much more as a radio uh, play. However, Cary Grant, I mean, big star, great actor. I can't imagine it's terrible. I'm going to have to check that out, see if I can find the original film somewhere. Yeah, and I'm not saying it's terrible either. I'm saying that just uh, transferring it to a filmed media doesn't create quite the same impact as it does when you listen, as you mentioned yourself. Okay, well, I did the math, and if uh, Miss Fletcher was born in 1912, and this was first a radio play in 1940, she was in her late 20s when she wrote this story. That's pretty amazing. It is, to have that skill set already. At that age, I would agree with you, yes. Right, right. Okay, we will be back next Thursday with another edition of the Good Old Days of Radio Show. We'll actually be back on Tuesday, for those of you who follow this series carefully. Uh, Tuesdays we do drama, variety, and comedy, and Thursdays we usually do kind of creepy, suspense, horror-type stories, and we'll get to those because Lucille Fletcher wrote some great ones, but today was a, a, a little exception to that. We'll be back next week with a Lucille Fletcher tribute week two, and uh, Mr. Don Ramlow will be back with me on that show, and we'll have some more to say about the career of uh, Lucille Fletcher. So until next week, either Tuesday or Thursday, or both, you should be listening to both, uh, this is John Tefteller in the Good Old Days of Radio Show saying goodbye. (laughs) 